Luke chapter 10, we're going to begin at verse 25. We went as far as 24, and, and we're just going to go to chapter 11, verse 13 tonight. Jesus has just um, thanked the Father for saving those who had repented through the gospel as he um, sent out the um, 70. And, um, and he also uh, received the news of those who had hardened their heart. And um, God gives opportunity to people who hear the gospel. Two people can be standing side by side. One whose heart is open to the gospel is convicted of their sin. They are convicted by the Lord that they are sinners, enemies of God, and that God is the Savior of the world. And they respond by God's initiation to repentance, and they're saved. While the other person next to them, maybe a close friend, maybe whoever went with them, um, they're just saying, man, I wish this guy would shut up. I can't wait to get out of here. This is a bunch of junk. I'm not a sinner. There's no such thing as salvation. And their heart is just... You ever try to dig in your backyard when it's, there's been no rain? Uh, I used to work construction. I, I went in places where I would take a pick and it would, it would bounce off the dirt. Um, nothing can penetrate it. Now, that hardness of heart is not by God's doing, but it's doing by our own hardness of heart. So in other words, God ministers to both with the same intensity to save them, but he doesn't force people to repent or to agree with him. And uh, again, it depends on the kind of theology that you're brought up under. If you believe in Calvinism, that you believe that people can only repent if God has unconditionally elected them. And then you believe that the remainder of society is damned and they can't repent because God never died for them. I reject that theology. I believe that Jesus Christ died for the whole world and that every person will have an equal opportunity. And when they end up in hell, it's their own doing and not God. So... There's two different camps in the church. Always has been. Um, I, I reject the Calvinistic theology. I believe that God died for all and that all have equal chance. And before they die, they will have at least one chance. I can't tell you when, where, or how. That's not my business. But I know God, when he said that he died for all, and he paid the price for all, that he signed it in blood. And so there's always that type of person. And maybe you were born again and you heard the gospel and you got saved and then your friend or whoever was with you didn't. Now, you can't attribute it to your merit, to your righteousness, because you're intelligent. It's just that you agreed with God at the conviction. It's bottom line. You, you responded in agreement with God and the other one responded in disagreement with God. And God honored both of your choices. He saved you. And he took the light away from the one that rejected it. So now there's greater darkness. It's real simple. It's really not that difficult. Now, when we get to verse 25, down to 37, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, we spend uh, an entire Sunday morning in it. So if you're interested in the depth study of it, you can get it there. So I'm going to go through general commentary. Um, but it's unique of uh, Luke. Uh, the other synoptics do not present it. Again, this is the central uh, part of uh, Luke's gospel. A lot of stuff that is unique of him and nowhere else. He says, that, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and, um, and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So right away, the teacher here, he's a lawyer. He's a scribe. He, he's one who interprets, studies the law. He's a doctor of the law. And, and, and by the very chance that he stands up, it's, uh, Behold, uh, it's, it's, it's an exclamation of, uh, of an imperative command. Note this man. And this man comes to test Jesus, to, to try him, to embarrass him, to trap him, to kind of discredit him before the crowd. Um, all the um, religious leaders, whether it be scribes, Pharisees, they were always attempting to trap Jesus, but he never could be trapped. And he, so he poses this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now you can see there's two camps here, just as I said. There's the camp of Jesus that says the only way you can be saved is by believing in me and repenting. And the camp of this scribe, this lawyer, is that he believes you can gain eternal life by doing something. So there's two different camps here. He's not agreeing with Jesus and he's trying to discredit him. That's what he's doing. And so he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he turns it around, a question with a question, and he knows he's trying to trap him. So Jesus turns the tables on him without the lawyer knowing, <laughs> which is kind of difficult to do to the lawyer sometimes, but Jesus can do it. And um, 
you know, he studied the law. What do you read? This this goes for the record. What is recorded? Well, he understood exactly what was recorded in the law. He's dealing with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 9, where it speaks there of the, uh, as he's going to say, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself out of Leviticus uh, 19.18. And so he, he puts it back on him that in, in him responding with the obvious answer, he's a doctor of the law, this is a basic question, he in turn will be trapping himself <laughs> and giving himself his own answer. He says, so... He answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, I've given you the text, and, and the, the fact that all is included to every little item there, it means completely, totally, an undivided heart. Uh, the first command was the first table of the law, the vertical axis, uh, our command and obedience, uh, commandments and obedience to God. The second deals with man, the second table of the law, the horizontal. Now, the way we keep relationships right with you and I, husbands and wives and people, is when we're right with God. And we're right with God, we're going to do everything to be right with man. But when we're not right with man is because we're not right with God. Something is wrong. And so we have to fix those things. And that's always the case. People come in for counseling, whether it be single counseling, marriage counseling, whatever it is. It always goes down to your vertical relationship with God. When you're not right with God, everything else goes wrong. When you're right with God, whatever's wrong, you'll fix it. In obedience, in humility, in brokenness. But when we stand on our own pride and we want to do it our way, then, then we're cut off from heaven. And we're left to our own devices. And that always adds a lot more hurt to ourselves and to others. And so again, here, the um, uh, all your heart, the very... Seed of who you really are in character, the soul, suki, intellect, emotion, and wills. Now you're being born again. If you're born again, then you'll be able to yield to God. If you're not born again, it's a, a futile effort because sin nature controls you. Um, all your strengths, uh, everything that's in you, all your mind, the thoughts, the ideas, how you think, how you perceive things. And here the mind is added to, to the scriptures in the Old Testament because he's quoting the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew writings. And so, in verse 28, he says, And he said to him, um, You have answered rightly, correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, (laughs) here, Jesus commanded the lawyer, he commends him first for the correct answer, but then, he, he commands him in the imperative command here to go love God and his neighbor constantly, continuously, without a break. Which would be impossible as sinners. We fall short. We can't do it. You, you might take a test and you say, well, I passed the test. And so when you pass that test 100%, you've proven that you are inerrant for that particular test. But you haven't proven that you're infallible. You take another test, you pass 100%, you're inerrant on that particular test. And let's just say you take 20, you pass them 100%. You've proven you're inerrant. But in all those 20 inerrant uh, successes... You, have, you, you still are infallible because then you take one more test somewhere down the line and now you miss one. Now you've proven that you are infallible. You're not infallible. You're fallible. We're human. The Word of God is inerrant and infallible just like God. The inspiration of the Scriptures. That makes a big difference. And so here he recognizes a sinner. He's busted. You either have to confess and admit it or you have to stand on your pride And make it worse. (laughs) Now. In verse. 29. But he wanting to justify himself. Said to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? So he chooses. The prideful avenue. Prideful Lord. That's where he's going down. 
He attempts to be sarcastic to evade the answer and thinks he's smart, kind of trying to embarrass perhaps Jesus uh, before the people. But in fact, what he's done is he has set himself up because Jesus knows exactly his heart and he knows where he's taking him. Um, sometimes I, I, I'm amazed of how dumb we are as people. When we think we can pull certain shenanigans with Christian people or whoever it may be, while we know we're being deceptive or dishonest, and, and to just completely forget that God sees and knows and knows every bit of my dishonest heart. And I don't fear. But see, once we take the bait to walk in the flesh, if there's not repentance, you'll continue to walk in the flesh. And the more you walk in the flesh, the more confident you are in the flesh. But the more confident you are in the flesh, the more trouble you bring yourself into. When you're a non-believer, that's where you live. But now you're a Christian. You're busted. There is no excuse, no justification. And I am amazed of people who have walked with God for years, used by God. And I am very aware of some of the shenanigans that go on in their lives. As pastors or leaders, and I go, my Lord, have you forgotten what you've been teaching for 30, 40 years? Have you forgotten that all the kings fell in their old age? And it's that sin that blinds us. Power, deception, pride, all of that. Now in verse 30, down to 35, he gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus answered and, and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Um, you always go down. Okay? Uh, when you are um, in Jerusalem, you go down to anywhere in the land of Israel. When you are anywhere in the land of Israel, you always go up to Jerusalem. It's higher elevation. Um, you have about 2,300 um, feet above sea level. Um, Jerusalem, 1,300 feet below. Down in Jericho, you've got 3,600 feet drop in 17 to 18 miles. This is the old Jericho Road. Very, very dangerous. Um, it was called the Red or Bloody Way. Uh, robbers, thieves, everybody hid out in the caves and people came by. They assaulted them. Now, um, some people say this is not a parable. It's a story, a real account. Well, I, I don't think it is. There's a punchline to it. Um, even though it's not introduced by the word parable, it's accepted as a parable by most individuals. So here a certain man from Jerusalem comes down and he fell among thieves and they stripped him of his clothes and wounded him. And he departed, leaving him for dead. And so apparently he put up a fight and, you know, uh, he didn't want to give up his clothes. And they robbed him, beat him up, and just left him there. And now we're, we're introducing the parable to the first gentleman here. And um, now, by chance, a certain priest came down uh, that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So very possibly this... Um, um, priest here, very religious, very ceremonial, ritualistic, and yet um, maybe he's coming back from his duty in Jerusalem, and uh, Jericho is a, a city of priests, uh, uh, a priestly city. There were different cities ascribed to the priest. And he's heading back, and, and all of a sudden he comes across this guy who was laying there, and um, he just saw him, and he, he just passed to the other side. He just, you know, indifferent. You don't want to be bothered. Um, today's society is going that way where people are in trouble and nobody wants to get involved. Because today there's so much liability of somebody suing you and everything. Nobody wants to get involved. So what, what, what leads us today in America is our own survival instinct and protection of ourselves. So what motivates us is fear rather than responsibility. There was a time not long ago in America where the majority of Americans felt a personal responsibility to aid, to help someone in need. Today, there could be someone robbing a store. A person just walked by, say nothing, not even call the police. A woman being assaulted and people walking by and don't even help her. 
that's not a strange outcome in America anymore. Um, um, you know, when somebody hit and run somebody, that was a severe crime. Today, it happens all the time. People don't even stop. There was one case about five years ago where this man just um, um, hit this little girl and just dragged her under his car for miles. And he was a retired policeman. I mean, our society has changed dramatically. This man wants nothing to do with it. He doesn't want to be bothered. Then we get the second gentleman, 32. He says, likewise, the Levite. So he is of the family of Aaron. He also has the privilege, a high privilege of doing service unto God. When he arrived at the place, he came and he looked and he passed by on the other side. So he at least went up to the man, looked at him, examined. And, but he was callous. Even after seeing the wounds and the condition is in, he just goes away. Now, there's a distinction between the two, but the result is the same. They haven't helped this man at all. They, they, they're just uninvolved. And, and, and so often today, that's the case. We look at what's happening, the horrible things that are happening today um, in the world with um, this Islamic um, jihad of killing people right now. Executions, mass executions, like when Hitler did with the Jews. And like in the days of Hitler with the Jews, the whole world is standing by. All the countries, they have the ability to stop these animals. And they're not doing it. Babies being beheaded, children beheaded, and their heads put on poles. Women being rounded up from 13 to 50, 55, shackled and sold or emasculated sexually. Christians being persecuted, killed, the properties confiscated. Where's the world's leaders? Where are they? Nowhere. Jesus said, When the strong man is strong, then you protect your house in the Proverbs. He gave a parable of the strong man being overcome first. The position of a nation is always to be strong, to protect itself against others. You aren't strong just to flex your muscles. You equip your nation to be strong, to protect your nation Always hoping you never have to exercise that power to protect yourself. But ready to do so to protect yourself. It's a simple principle. You become weak. There's plenty that's going to challenge you. You don't have to go very far. Don't go to the armies of the world. Just go to the school ground. Go to the streets. You can handle yourself. Sure, there'll be somebody to mess with you, but not everybody. Can't handle yourself. Everybody picks on you. At least when I grew up. And where I grew up. <laughs> I didn't grow up in church. It's the same principle. Take it up as high as you want. No different. And so here again, these guys do nothing. Now... In verse 33, he says, but, here comes a third gentleman, a certain Samaritan. Ooh, the minute they heard that, their ears just perked up, the hair on the back of their neck stood up. They're all Jews. Samaritan? Half-breeds? Half-Jew? Half-Gentile? From the Assyrian captivity of cross-populating in 722 B.C.? Right in the middle, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. You know how the Jews travel? Cross over Jordan, go up to the King's Highway? Or over the Mediterranean Sea, the Via Maris, and go up. And then when they came back in, they would shake the dust off their clothes just in case they brought some Gentile soil with them. They believe God created the Gentiles just to kindle the fires of hell. Oof. You think our, our, our hatred of black and white and whatever combination you want to get, you think it's bad here now. Say, you don't know prejudice until you understand the prejudice between the Jew and the Gentile. It was incredible. 
And Jesus said, I'm his knees go through Samaria. And he goes talk to a woman. Of all people, not only a Samaritan, but a woman. <laughs> Amazing. There he is, the Samaritan. As he journeyed, he came and where he, where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion, pity, empathy. Human responsibility. Could be me. Could be my son. Could be my wife. It's a human being. And so, he went to him. He bandaged his wounds. Poured on oil and wine. These were common things that were carried along. Along the highway and journey. Um, Oil would soothe your skin if you got a cut and everything else to soothe the pain. A little wine would be a disinfectant. Okay. Um, Those were the common medicines. And, um, And he set him on his own animal, probably a donkey, and he brought him into an inn, and he took care of him. So he remained with him the whole day. Now, he doesn't know this guy from Adam, but this guy has compassion. He feels a social responsibility. Now, we have good Samaritan laws that are based upon this parable. But now, the majority of people don't want to get involved because of liability. And yet, within that Samaritan law that we have, there are protective um, articles If you would help somebody with good intentions and something worse would happen to them. But you know how laws and lawyers are. The law is like a rubber band. It depends who's pulling it and how far. Especially today when there's no ethics and no norms. It's like a chess game. Who's the best player? That's what it boils down to. You've got a lot of money. Oh man, you're going to be set free. If you get a real good lawyer. If you don't. You're going to jail. There was a time when I would feel comfortable going to court in America if I was innocent. Today, if I was innocent, I'd be real nervous. If I was guilty, I wouldn't be as nervous. (laughs) Everything has changed completely. Now, he takes care of him. Verse 35, on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii. Two days wages, a denarius a day's wage, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him and whatever more you spend uh, when I come again, I will repay you. So this man goes far and beyond his obligation. He could have passed it on to the innkeeper, says, listen, I've done what I can, you know, why don't you flip the next two days? Or gone out in the inn there where people are having breakfast or something. Hey, listen, I'm taking a donation for this guy. Isn't that how everything's done today? Somebody sees a need and they go beg everybody. Instead of meeting the need themselves. We're great organizers, but not good agonizers. <laughs> it's, it's the modern way now. Now look at 36. Down to 37, you have the lawyer. He's tested by Jesus now for the correct answer. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him? Who fell among the thieves. Now, the lawyer already knows the answer. He knows he's busted. (laughs) He's a lawyer. And he knew this question was coming. And he has stood up to trap Jesus. Now every eye is on him. What a warning to us when we think we can deal deceptively with others as we're Christians. And we try to get over on them. God will not be mocked. This man's standing up and all eyes are upon him. And he's going to be humbled. And he said. He who showed mercy on him. Wow. He didn't say the Samaritan. He couldn't say that. He hated the Samaritans. He said. You know, the one who helped him. He wouldn't say Samaritan. Most likely the injured guy was a, was a Jew also. Like the other two priests and the Levite. And a Samaritan helped a Jew? Oh, I, that can't happen. <laughs> How interesting. Here's the kicker. Here's the punchline. Of the parable. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. 
So verse 37 gives the two full punchline of the parable. When he gives this command, he is, it's an imperative present tense like the one he asked. Go do it consistently and constantly. Well, he's busted all over again. First of all, he knows he can't do that. So he either has to continue to believe the lie that he believes that you can earn, inherit eternal life by what you do, or he has to switch camps and believe that Jesus is telling the truth and repent and be born again and have the potential to do what he's been commanded. Those are the only two choices. There's no other one. Verse 38 down to 42, we have now the visit of Jesus with Mary and Martha. Now it happened as um, they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Now, the Jericho Road is down there by, by Jericho, down towards that area, the region south. Um, Bethany is the city here. Bethany is just a couple of miles on the, uh, from west from Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And um, this is the house of Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. Um, at this point here in verse 38, um, Jesus is visiting them. There's another account that we get in John chapter 12 where Mary pours out this expensive sphincter order that, uh, oil, that um, ointment that she puts on Jesus' feet. And then she wipes his feet with her hair. Now, don't confuse that one with the prostitute that did that. Two different accounts. And don't put this visit here with the one in John 12. Two different accounts. There, she anointed his feet and washed him, dried him with her hair. Here, it's a visit he's coming. And he's eating here with them. Two different accounts. Luke gives the material that we don't find in other places. And again, he doesn't always connect them in chronological order. In fact, at this middle portion of his gospel, he leaves all chronological order altogether. And he groups things by themes and topics sometimes. We've already seen in the past. When we go further, we'll see where Jesus um, gives a parable. If you remember of the, uh, of the lost coins, the lost sheep, and the lot, two lost sons. Those three little parables they seem to be disjointed have no relationship or they do it's joy for one sinner on earth that goes on in heaven that's the punchline of those three so he groups them in groupings many times distinct and different from Matthew and Mark and so here again um, the location is um, Bethany and um, he entered the village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. Um, some believe because she's mentioned first that she, in fact, is uh, the older of the two. But here, um, Martha, it's her house. Uh, she's the one that uh, probably just fixes everything up. And, you know, and you, you've seen sisters that are totally um, opposite to each other. Um, and yet they're born to the same parents, they're raised in the same home, they have the same upbringing, but night and day. It's just the way things are. Um, verse 30 says that she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his words. Now, apparently Jesus was there teaching and they both were listening to Jesus. And in, in the house, as he ministered to them, there's also often questions and, and that. And apparently then at, at a set time, Martha got up to prepare the meals and to get things ready. But Mary remained. Now, this didn't go too well with Martha. And as you know, if, if you've been around children, if you had children yourself, you could have two little girls just like this. You know, and they're together to find them. One of them will want to fix the room or something. They want to say, nah, I don't want to. Mom, you know, she can't want this. Nah, no. You know how it is. Human nature. Now, these are adults. 
But something's never changed, right? <laughs> we just do it on the adult level, right? It's the same stuff, sin nature. It's ever present. And, um, and here she is sitting at the Lord's feet. And, um, but um, Martha, she's, um, she's busy preparing things. And in verse 40 to 42, we get the instructive teachings to Martha from Jesus. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and says, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Martha, in contrast to her sister Mary, was distracted with much serving. The word distracted means to be driven about with the idea of anxious frustration mentally and emotionally. She is so concerned about the meal and the right things and everything else that she has forgotten what she heard at the feet of the master. How that much is like us sometimes. I'm at a Bible study and I just, oh, yes, Lord. And, or I'm reading by myself and just doing something. Oh, yes, Lord. And then I close. I pray, Lord, God, go before me. Teach me. Just help me. And I get up and all of a sudden I forgot everything I learned. It's like it just goes, <laughs> gone. She was more concerned of how everything looked and prepared for the meal. Martha approached Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. Now, some try to defend Martha, but it's hard to do so. Uh, she's bent out of shape that her sister Mary is not helping to prepare the meal. Now, whatever we do, we're to do it as unto the Lord. And I understand that there, when you're doing something, you want help. And if there's an agreement and there's things that have already been arranged, fine. But, but the focus on this is that Martha is really in the wrong here because of who is present and because of the circumstance and situation, okay? So we don't want to get, because a lot of people get a lot of teaching. Well, you know, there's people that should be Martha's and they're working and then we got married to sit on the feet and that's not your gift. No. It's not what it's teaching. They're both sisters. Jesus is there. They're going to eat. They're fellowshipping with him. She was sitting. She was being ministered to. Now she's serving. And now she's serving the flesh. So she's tweaked. <laughs> She's so concentrated on her perfection and, 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 and ability to do something that, that she's not resting in the Lord. And that's easily, easily done by all of us. So Martha kind of reproves Jesus. Don't you care? Martha has Marthitis. She left me to serve alone. She's the focus of her problem. Our society today is much like this. It's an entitled society. A society that not only believes should be taken care of, but a society that now demands to be taken care of by others. It goes from outrage to being just right down dangerous if it goes long enough. The Bible says you don't work, you don't eat. Simple principle. Even the dog has to bark if he's going to get fed. Everybody has their part. She's all caught up with herself. In verse 41, he says, Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. So Jesus reproved Martha gently for her preoccupation over things that are really not important in view that Jesus is present. Not that it's not important to have a good meal and to do your part, but in view of what is going on, 
Who cares? Give me a piece of bread. Jesus is here. No big deal. <laughs> Jesus answers her, Martha, Martha. Getting her attention, double name. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? If you had a middle name, your mom called you by your first name. John. Yeah. But if you had a middle name, they go, John Paul, you knew you were in trouble. Martha, Martha. What are you doing here? The tone is not given to us. But I believe it's tender. I don't believe it's in, in sharp rebuke. But at the same time, stern. Stern enough to know to get the message and be corrected. That's one thing about parenting. If you parent your children from the beginning and you teach them the word of God, the importance of God, the family structure, the order that God sets, and you teach them the word of God and you encourage them, then... Um, Obedience is much easier for your children. And as they grow, they're going to be children like children are. But if you've instructed them, all you have to do at times is just go. That's it. My dad wasn't a Christian. Let me tell you, we were at somebody else's house or in the store out in public, and we were doing something, and he just looked, ooh, that's it, no words needed to be said at all. Try that today. Kid will say, you want want a piece of me? (laughs) That's what the kid will tell you. There's no authority today because there's no consequences. When you don't bring consequences to children or society, then the authority is all destroyed. It's real simple. It's not really that difficult to understand. A permissive society is a destructive society, an amoral society is a disintegrating society. It will come to a screeching halt sooner or later. Jesus pointed out the priority in verse 42. The main thing, but one thing is needed. The main thing. The one thing is in contrast to the many things disturbing Martha. Paul says, one thing is needful. Forgetting those things that are behind and reaching forward to the things that are ahead. If I as a Christian keep looking to my, looking to my past, then I'll always be crashing going forward. Try that when you go home tonight. After the study, get in your car. I want you to look backwards and drive going home. See how far you get. Too many Christians live their life like that. Now, Satan's there to do that to us. We have to resist it. We have to bring our thoughts in captivity. We have to say, that's all in the past. That's not not real anymore. God has cleansed me. God has forgiven me. I don't belong there anymore. So I put on the mind of Christ. I believe what the Word of God says. One thing in contrast to the many things that were disturbing her. The right choice? And Mary has chosen the good part. Agathos. That which is beneficial. Sound. Healthy. To sit at the Lord's feet. At this point, the best thing is to sit at the Lord's feet. Not that taking care of a meal is bad. 
It comes a time when it's important as a priority. At this point, it's best to sit at the Lord's feet. And so we have to say, Lord, give me wisdom on, on, on choosing the, the better always, the priority. Then comes the refusal to stop Mary, which will not be taken away from her. Wow. The lesson is not that being a worker is wrong, but that it is only wrong when you should be sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's all. See, some people find it easier for them to just be busy than to sit at the Lord's seat. Some people find it easier to just go from church to church hearing different speakers and chasing, you know, Holy Ghost meetings or whatever than to sit down for two or three or four hours and study the Word of God themselves. The people they're just they 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 they're just busy. They you know they then they don't have the discipline to sit down at the Lord's feet, and it's so necessary uh, to hear His voice, to let Him deal with you, uh, to work through the Word. Uh, the Holy Spirit ministers to us. All of us need this. Now, as we come to chapter eleven, the first thirteen verses, we have. A model and illustrations on prayer. The parallel passage regarding verse 1 through 4, commonly known as the Lord's Prayers in Matthew 6, 9 through 15. This is the shorter, that's the longer account over there. It says, now it came to pass... As he was praying, so once again, Jesus, and we saw that this morning, this is one of the times he was praying, and in a certain place, that he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And so, Jesus would always go off to pray alone to the Father, and they would be looking for him, and he would be, and when he ceased, he came back. We never get a record where Jesus prayed to the Father with the disciples or apostles, always on his own. Now, he prayed up to the Father in front of them, but never in a group thing. Never. And they admired, they looked at him, and, and, and again, it was a practice of all certain rabbis to teach their disciples to pray. They mentioned here now John the Baptist, that he did so. Remember, John the Baptist was a cousin of Jesus Christ, six months older. Uh, we don't have any record of this, but we have the statement that he did do this. Uh, so once again, Luke, um, through the interviews and all the things that he collected as material, gives us things that we don't have in the other Gospels. Um, and so, in um, verse 2, he says, So he said to them, When you pray, say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He proceeds to show them. The attitude, the perspective, and the content of what prayer should contain. A sample, if you will. Usually this prayer is taught as repetitive prayer, especially if you were an ex-Catholic. You know, you said, Our Fathers and Hail Marys. You know, you do the rosary, you have, I forget now, I think one Our Father between every ten Hail Marys and, and the three and the one in the beginning. I, I forget, it's been so long. But... Um, but thinking that in our much speaking or praying that we're going to be heard. And Jesus says that that's vain repetition. Uh, God doesn't honor that. You pray to God. You speak to him from your heart. Just like you would speak to your children or to a friend or anything else. And again, this type of um, relationship uh, of father is something that the Jew would shudder at. A Jew would never say that God was his father or address him as father. Now, the Old Testament gives us that God is the father of the nation, but never of an individual Jew. Or would they address him like that? The Jew would have to go through a priest. The priest was a mediator between God and man. 
And so when the priest went into God, he would be representative of a man to God. When he came out, he would be representing God to the people. It's not until Jesus Christ came that he becomes our high priest in the true holy of holies in heaven. And we have right to come to the throne of grace to find grace in time of need whenever we, we, we can and we need. And so here again, um, the Lord's Prayer really is in John 17. This is not the Lord's Prayer because he could never pray this prayer. There's a petition for forgiveness of sins and Jesus didn't have any sin at all. And so uh, the Lord's Prayer is in John 17 before he goes to the cross. Now, the important principles here of prayer, acknowledging one's relationship to God the Father, as I said, in heaven, holy is his name. Uh, the priest would not even mention his name. The scribes um, considered it so holy that they didn't even write all the consonants. Uh, I'm sorry, all the vowels, only the consonants, Y-H-V-H or Y-H-W-B-H. So we don't know whether it's pronounced Jehovah, Yahweh, or Yahweh. Most likely now through different scholarship and stuff like that, it used to be Jehovah, but now it's more Yahweh. So, um, but God never intended for the Jews not to know how to pronounce his name. This was a guy thing, a man thing, a religious thing. God wanted them to know his name and to consider it holy. So when they would write, they would even disbow and not even say the name with their with their lips, and the scribe would uh, go bathe, change clothes, get a new pen, and then write the consonants, but no vowels. That's why the yod and the tittles in the later manuscripts were so you would know how to pronounce it. Um, and so, but God never intended that. But the idea is here, he's holy, his name is holy, so we're to come before him in worship and in reverence and respect. Um, today you have the new Christianity that treats God like a friend. Yo, how are you? Yes, dad, no, no, really. And there's no respect towards God. There's, there's, a, there's a lostness in that. We even have, uh, you know, modern day churches where just people are with coffee and, you know, next thing we're going to have is popcorn and, you know, and it's amazing. Even today, even here in Calvary Chapel, there was a time when you went somewhere, particularly a church, but any place of public speaking or a theater or a dinner, once you sat down, you would never think of getting up. Ever. That would be so disrespectful. Today? It doesn't matter they're sitting up in front. Get up and walk out, come back in. They think they're at the show. Amazing. We can call God Abba Father, Daddy. Romans eight fifteen, Galatians four six. What a privilege we have. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says, uh, God's in heaven, you're on earth, so let your words be few. Choose them well. <laughs> Good advice. Also in two, recognizing the priority of the kingdom of God. John opened up the New Testament, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's in the midst of you. It's in you. Luke eleven twenty and other passages. All these things the Gentiles seek after, but you seek the kingdom of God and it righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew six twenty five to 34 says, the world, you and I, before we were Christians, boy, we lived for things. You remember that? You remember being in the school? And you got to have the coolest car. you got to have the threads. You've got to, you know, put on the whole act. And man, you worked and then put your whole paycheck on those wheels, on that new upholstery, on those shoes, on that dress, or whatever it is, so you can look hot. That's where we lived. By the way, men, women dress for women, not for men. <laughs> Keep your eye on women when another woman walks in with her shoes. Let's leave, honey. We can't stay here. She's got my shoes. Or the dress. We're different creatures. <laughs> Guy walks in with the same shirt he has. Hey, dude, that's nice shirt. Give me five, man. <laughs> Don't bother us. We're two different things. Completely. Amazing. Desiring the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. 
We know if we ask anything according to his will. First John 5, 16 says we, we will have it. But listen to me. Sometimes God's will is no. Now, when God tells you no as a Christian, you should be as excited as if he told you yes. Because what you want is God's answer. That's the best. So yes and no to a Christian should be the same. So I have to discipline my mind and heart and my mind that it's his kingdom first, his will be done, and that he knows best. I may look at some and think that that's the best thing for me if I could just have it, but God says it would destroy me. Or God doesn't tell me, he just knows it will destroy me. You as a parent, your children will say, Dad, I want to do this, I want to do that. No, no, you can't do that. They haven't been around the block long enough. You know it's going to ruin them. You say, no, you can't do that. No, you can't go down that house. No, you can't hang on that guy. No, I don't want you playing ball with them. My dad's mean. No, he loves you. God says no to you. God's mean. No, he loves you. He knows better than us. And so, he's Lord. I'm the servant. (laughs) He's holy. I'm the sinner. He knows everything. I think I know everything. (laughs) He's all protective. I'm all indulgent. (laughs) What a contrast. Wisdom is to trust the Lord. Then God were to go to him for forgiveness of sins, and that's tied to our forgiveness of others. Um, Matthew six fourteen through 15 says, If I don't forgive others when they ask me forgiveness, then I have no right, nor should I dare ask God to forgive me, because he won't, even if I ask. The forgiveness upon my sin as a Christian for fellowship is based on the condition that I forgive others when they ask me. That's a pretty heavy statement in Matthew. Absolutely. It's not a one-way street, ladies and gentlemen. It's a two-way street. And then trusting and yielding to God against the temptations of the devil for protection and direction. God's not going to lead us. And James uh, 1.13 says, Let no man say he's tempted of God. God cannot tempt any man with evil. But every man and woman is tempted when they're carried along by own lust and desire and then bring themselves to that sin. And sin is conceived. We're to submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from us. James 4.7 says... Satan, like a roaring lion, seeks whom he may devour. He roars around looking. First Peter 5, 8. So you need to put on the armor of God, the mind of Christ. And do good fighting. Now in verse 5 down to 10. We have the parable of the persistent friend to illustrate our confidence in prayer. He's just talked about prayer. Here you have a perfect example of three things grouped together with the theme of God answering prayer. They don't seem to be any connection, but there are. It's all about prayer here. Chronologically, in order of the events, no. But in topic, absolutely. And so he says, and he said to them, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, do not trouble me. Go away. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. So here's this guy, he's knocking on the door. Now, this is a poor house. One room is divided in two. One half is raised a little higher, the other one lower. And the higher place is probably a hearth for fire. They all gather around and go to sleep for heat. On the bottom layer, you have all the animals in there. The door is shut. The door is open all day long. But once this door is shut, everybody's down for the night. You can imagine somebody knocking. Now, you know, if you go to a house and it's late, if you have to knock, you go. You don't want to go. Bah, 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 bah. And you're hoping they hear the little ones so you don't startle them and they don't think you're a bug. Well, this guy, um, he, apparently he feels he's got to have what he's got to have. And, um, but the man from within um, tells him, 
complain out. I, 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 you know, everybody's down. I'm going to wake everybody up and the animals and the kids and forget it, man. We, we'll never get any sleep tonight. Jesus gives the reason for the friend rising up and giving him bread. Verse 8. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. The word persistent means shamelessness, obnoxiously pestering. He will not go away. Now, Jesus makes the application in verse 9 and 10. Now, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. Now, as Jesus makes the application of this mini parable, now to the believer by way of contrast to illustrate God's willingness to give back to the individual as we ask God will give to us, Notice that sometimes this parable is taught as a, um, because parables either compare or contrast. The tendency of many is to teach this parable as a comparison. As this man got up, so God will give you also. But that's a problem. I believe it's teaching a contrast. To make it a comparison would mean that God has to be pestered, has to be uh, pressured. And he finally can say, all right, all right, I'll get up. I'll give you the thing, just go away. I can't accept that interpretation. But if I take the contrast, because parables either compare or contrast, then the contrast fits. This man is sleeping. God is not. This man doesn't want to get up and disturb the house. That's not God. And this man only gives reluctantly so he can get him off his back. Well, that's not my God. So that's why in verse 9 and 10, he says, Ask, you shall receive, knock, shall be open, see, you shall find. In other words, though this guy is reluctant, God is not. All we have to do is ask is his children, Right? He's just giving the example of prayer, our needs for forgiveness, all of that. Asking the basic things that are for life. Jesus is not going to turn us down. He's not saying about asking for a Mercedes, a Rolls Royce, or a vacation house. <laughs> He's talking about the basic things here. Nothing more basic than food. James 4, 2-3 says, We have not because we ask not, because we ask amiss that it might be consuming our own flesh. So sometimes we don't have because we don't ask. And sometimes we don't have because we ask for the wrong reasons and wrong motivations. And God says no. Again, He knows. So God is not like this friend asleep or being inconvenienced when we ask God for things. So the many parable is a contrast. Teaching us that God is not like this friend who is put out, even though he gives them that. I believe this is the proper interpretation of the parable. Now, when we come to verse 11 to 13, it's just the opposite. It's the flip side, a comparison. The parable of the fatherhood to doubly illustrate our confidence in prayer towards God. Verse 11. He says, If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? There are three rhetorical questions with the same answer. No. 
Or if he asks him for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? A serpent dead, not poisonous, not alive. No. Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? No. Here's a punchline. If you then, being evil, know how to good gifts, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's a comparison from the lesser to the greater. How much more? So the first one contrasts, the second compares. So we get the proper interpretation. Our Heavenly Father has no potential of evil at all. But it's lesser to the greater. And so, prayer is very, very important. Our submission to God's will is the most important, the wisest. Now, Today there's what's being taught by the emergent church called contemplative prayer. Prayer that gets into uh, imagery, uh, opening your mind to familiar spirits, uh, walking labyrinths. It's crazy. Uh, Richard Foster is one of the gurus of this in the early, the mid-80s. And um, and a lot of the merchant churches into contemplative prayer. The Bible teaches nothing about that. It's part of the same principles as yoga, as the New Age movement. You create your own reality. You go into silence like yoga. And that's being taught from the pulpit of a lot of churches. It's ridiculous. Now, imagery's been around since the 80s, but it keeps evolving and they keep mixing things up. And because people don't know the Word of God, then you've got all kinds of psychology and New Age and occultic things being taught over the pulpits of America. You want to see a good conglomeration of that? Tune on Oprah. She's the greatest promoter of heresy and the occult. Of familiar spirits. She has you on her show. You're guaranteed a million dollar sale. (laughs) It's amazing what's going on in our nation today. Ladies and gentlemen. And within the church. And so if you're grounded in the word of God. You'll be able to discern the false. If you're not grounded. Then you're a candidate for deception. Here's the protection. This is the plumb line. This will show you everything that's crooked. If you don't know this, you will be crooked. You have spiritual scoliosis. You'll be bent, out of shape. And you won't fit in the straight and narrow. You go off on different tangents. You've got to be ortho, straight. Very narrow. Only Jesus Christ. God is not politically correct. I hope you're not. Lord, thank you for your grace and love. Thank you for tonight. And we pray that you continue to deal with our hearts as we study your word. And Father, that we would continue to examine everything to your scriptures. So Lord, we do thank you. Pray for those that are here tonight. Lord, if anyone doesn't know you, that you would speak to their hearts. And Lord, they might see their need of you and call upon your name. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you um, felt conviction by the Spirit of God, or if you understand that you're a sinner by God's Spirit, as you've been sitting here, then that's the grace of God, the love of God for you. Jesus always called people to repentance, to accept Him. If you confess me before man, I'll confess you before my Father in Heaven. If you deny me, I will deny you on that day, He says. And so right where you sit, if you don't know Jesus Christ, maybe you're over the internet. If you want to be born again, if you believe Jesus is God who became man, died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you can call upon him and he will forgive you and save you. 
right where you sit right now. It's a prayer of repentance. That's how you ask Him in. A prayer. This is a prayer of repentance. If you want to say this to the Lord, He's going to save you, not I. He. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.